Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens, Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we're going to catch up to our Patreon listener questions. This will be another good YouTube show. But before we start answering, we would like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tor Talk, EEG and Me, Sadia M, and new supporters, Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. Welcome aboard. Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. There's a hyphen between a January and Terrell. Hopefully I get that get, uh, right, guys. I'm sure you can correct me later. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that's been around for 15 years. And Tor Talk wants more people to discover TTS Talk to Speech because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Okay, let's catch up on some listener questions. Uh, let's start with our good old Patreon supporters. I'm going to read one of these and uh, see where we go. Okay, guys? Jay has mentioned the right temporal parietal junction in several of the podcasts. The the context has included PTSD, autism, trauma, and more. I would love to hear a deep dive discussion uh, with Jay about that particular region. A list of the conditions like PTSD, RTPJ areas associated with What's RTPJ? Right, temporal parietal junction. Okay, right, see? temporal parietal junction, exactly. Uh, okay, got it. How it's different than the, uh, the left side, research findings related to that area, connectivity with other networks and regions, protocols used in neurofeedback for that area. Thanks, that's great. My interest was the first question regarding RTPJ, but my follow-up regarding ticks is also of interest. What an extreme privilege it is to be able to slip questions to this crew. Smiley face. All right, guys, hit it. Well, my, um, my initial response, and Jay, you jump in, but it's just, man, I'm impressed by the questions. I feel like I'm going to start uh, editing in my head uh, the things I say <laughs> and the questions I ask, right? We have an impressive group out there listening. No, no disrespect to lay folks that are trying to figure out what the heck neurofeedback's to, but Man, we got some brainiacs out there. Q, QJ for the answer. Well, she also put in here, for the tech-minded self-trainers among your audience, we'd really love info as precise as training protocols, examples, something like P4A2, 1114 reward, 4 to 7, and 2032 inhibits. How about that? Well, they are asking specific questions. Um, a specific answer like that would require a specific EEG to respond to. You know, um, the first of all, um, I, I ran into the right temporal parietal junction in a in late 1990s. Um, I had a, a, a client, uh, and this was early in the QEG business. Basically, 1995 was the first time any group said QEG was ready for clinical application. And it wasn't the American Academy. They were still kind of uh, uh, balking, but I didn't need too much permission, you know? Um, So uh, uh, one group said, it's okay. I started a commercial business. Um, One of my early customers was Larry Van Bloom uh, from Utah, and he worked with reactive attachment. Most of my clinical clients had been ADD, ADHD, frontal theta, frontal alpha, some beta spindles, but mostly frontal disturbances. And when Larry started to send in data, I kept seeing this right temporal parietal location light up again and again. And I thought at first, well, shit, he's got a bad amp, you know, or a bad cap. So we sent him new caps. Uh, Didn't change anything. We had him switch electrodes in the head box. That didn't do anything. Couldn't prove that it wasn't real so it had to be real uh, we, we we tried you know um but uh, uh, so this reactive attachment group had this finding that we weren't used to seeing and you know when you see something new you you try to kind of investigate it a bit and you read up on it and all of that well reactive attachment you you either have had 
no exposure to other people early in your life, laying in a crib, not even a mobile above you in, a, in an orphanage somewhere. And, you know, you, you don't establish any um, face-to-face contact with parents uh, or, or any significant other. Or you've had a traumatic early life experience. And both of those end up with the same focus, the same spot. And that spot recognizes facial expressions. It recognizes the tone of speech. It's like Wernicke's area, the left temporoparietal junction, which has had a whole bunch of work. I mean, left hemisphere is largely what you see. Um, And I think if you punch in right temporoparietal junction in a browser and look for images, you'll find them circling the left temporoparietal junction on images because that's the bulk of the images that you see are left hemisphere. So uh, that this unrecognized right hemisphere, the emotional hemisphere, not the language hemisphere, and ends up having a, a focal problem in the temporoparietal junction. And again, this is where uh, uh, the mirror neuron system sends information. On the left side, you learn speech, ma, 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 pa, 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 da, da, da. And eventually you identify ma, ma, and pa, pa are two different people. And the, the mirroring isn't just the only thing. The second part of that loop has comprehension into the temporoparietal junction. On the right hemisphere, you see basically the same uh, kind of learning, uh, face-to-face learning with facial expressions. Uh, the mother or father uh, face-to-face with the infant uh, has smiles and grimaces and surprise looks and so forth that they, they end up mimicking and they learn emotion. Well, if you've never had face-to-face or if the face-to-face was not uh, a pleasant experience, uh, that, that system ends up being not well-developed on the right side. So uh, we, we actually uh, presented in 2001, uh, uh, I think a hundred and something kids and 93% of them had two biomarkers, the anterior singlet, they have obsessive compulsive traits, and the right temporoparietal junction, the social perceptual problem. And th- that kind of, uh, um, you know, that kind of a, a shock entry into the right temporoparietal junction topic was my first blush into it. But I have to say, it, it wasn't the most striking uh, the, the most striking uh, was actually a, a chance encounter uh, at a meeting in Europe, in, in Berlin. Uh, and uh, I ran into Dirk de Ritter, uh, the neurosurgeon, MD-PhD, uh, academic neurosurgeon, um, professor in New Zealand, and he has um, surgical suites in, in Belgium. And, um, you know, I, we were chatting and... and uh, he asked me to look at a paper, uh, which I took a peek at. And uh, uh, the, the paper was basically about out-of-body experience. And you think, well, reactive attachment and out-of-body, how the hell are these connected? Uh, well, your sense of self is on that right temporoparietal junction. And uh, he gave me the paper. I looked at it and he said, what's wrong with the paper? I said, well, there's nothing wrong with the paper. It's great science, uh, uh, wonderful neuroscience. And he said, well, New England Journal of Medicine sent it back to me twice with no comment. It's just, you know, they, they didn't accept it at all. And I, I said, well, when I read it, I can tell you're European. You know, you, all the syntax is wrong for a Boston accent you get in. But if you don't have a Boston accent, you don't get into the New England Journal. You can't put it in with European syntax. They won't accept it. So, you know, give it to me on a thumb drive. I rewrote the paper that night and handed it back to him in the morning. It was submitted with no editorial change uh, and and accepted with no editorial change. And basically uh, what we've got is you can see this little stimulator. This is what was implanted in somebody who had tinnitus and they implanted into the temporoparietal junction. And uh, this guy had left ear tinnitus. So you have the right temporoparietal junction. Uh, and, and they put that stimulator in, and after it's in, they turn on the pairs of uh, electrodes to see which pair 
does the best job turning off the tinnitus. Uh, tinnitus is a thalamocortical dysrhythmia for people that have lost, uh, lost the input of sound. And uh, you have tonotopic shift and uh, it's a, it's a, a cortical plasticity gone awry and you have another frequency invading. So you have the sound of tinnitus. Well, when he put the stimulator in and he's done hundreds of these surgeries, uh, when they turned on one pair, the guy had an out-of-body experience. And, you know, in the U.S., they would have cut the wires so you couldn't stimulate those anymore, swept it under the risk management rug, and, and it wouldn't have been seen again. But Dirk has his own lab. Uh, and, you know, he thought, well, he can't tell if we have the stimulator on or off. I mean, you can't feel it. All he could say if he's in or out of his body. So we have a blinded radar out-of-body experience here. Um, and uh, what they did is they stuck him into an fMRI and uh, got this image of him. Uh, this is the difference between in and out. And you can see the right uh, temporal parietal junction area, as well as uh, uh, deep into the thalamus and uh, some cerebellar uh, area. But the big flare here in, in the uh, temporal parietal junction on the right side. So uh, the, this right temporal parietal junction has... Uh, implications for sense of self, um, uh, the, the the whole theory of mind, uh, the uh, your ability to create empathy uh, with another person. Um, it, it, it's it's crucial for so many things. Uh, it has the auditory cortex right next to it, so you pick up sounds. You've got the parietal area where you have uh, 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 prosodic perception. Uh, the the face and body language, all of that converges on this T6 or P8 in modified nomenclature, the newer uh, terminology for the same spot, but the right temporal parietal junction. And it, it shifted from T6 to P8 as a name because quite honestly, it's on the parietal side of the temporal parietal junction and the letter is supposed to designate the lobe that you're sitting on. So since 1948, 49, when they came up with a 1020 system, uh, they, they weren't really honest about the fact that it was a parietal electrode. It's right at the temporal parietal junction. It does reflect posterior uh, temporal uh, function. So uh, th that location has become uh, a very important one. We see it as a classic biomarker for social anxiety. Uh, not, not all kinds of anxiety are just driven by this, but social anxiety. If you can't read your social context, it's going to be a bit of an anxious situation being in a social environment. And uh, also uh, PTSD. And uh, um, uh, as such, uh, this specific location of P8 ends up being critical uh, in that area. I know that the people working in PTSD um, uh, at, at this point, not using QEG, are doing a lot of uh, T4, P4 work, uh, but the T6 or P8 is really where we see it as the uh, maximum. And interestingly, in the reactive attachment kids, I mean, reactive attachment doesn't start with exposure in a war scenario. It starts in the crib, basically, very, very, very early life. And for very early life experience, the encoding is not in your adult alpha frequency at all. We actually see very early life trauma as a slower frequency. Now, it may also have alpha as an excess there, but we expect slower activity with early life uh, trauma. And uh, because those are the frequencies that you have to encode things in at that point. When you're one, two, three years old, your background rhythm is in the delta and theta frequency range. It hasn't slipped up into the alpha range yet. So everything you're learning is encoded in those frequencies. Uh, as an adult, those are essentially pre-conscious or unconscious uh, uh, frequencies. You, it, it's, it's hard to access them uh, as an adult consciousness, uh, which is one of the reasons that the uh, alpha-theta style training can access deep unconscious material uh, when you hold the alpha state and you have a crossover into the theta state you dredge up the unconscious preconscious material into conscious awareness 
and the alpha state that's still present uh, can then deal with it. Uh, uh, so uh, alpha theta is actually one of the uh, 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 probably efficacious uh, applications for PTSD. Uh, anyway, I've, I've blabbed on around uh, the topic of right temporal parietal junction. We've got some actual neuropsychology experts here, and they should actually be the ones to make the major comments here. Hold on. Before we get the neuropsychologists going, just the, the regular guy here has a question. I don't want to, you know, all the religious people get pissed at me, but when you're laying on the operating table and you've been dead for two or three minutes, is this is what we're talking about? Is this what's going on in an out-of-body experience, or is that something different? Out-of-body experience is a complicated uh, situation. Uh, uh, this, this was the first neuroimaging study of an out-of-body experience to be published. Um, it, you know, the, uh, the, <laughs> there's quite a bit of uh, discussion about it, but there wasn't much actual neuroimaging. I mean, how many people that have out-of-body experiences happen to be in a neuroscience lab that has a functional MRI sitting there waiting to have them slipped in? You know, and, and again, in the United States, that, that unfortunate uh, hallucination that you had uh, when they turned on that stimulator would have been dismissed as a meta effect or something. And risk management people don't want this kind of stuff to be played around with uh, on a, you know, there, there's risk that the patient's going to get upset and sue the institution or something, you know, uh, the, 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 they worry a lot. Uh, what can I say? Um, uh, they, <laughs> that's their job. Uh, you get a worry work. Uh, it's a perfect, perfect job title for a worry work. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the patients basically uh, don't, if you're having out-of-body experiences, you're more likely to be uh, at home or in the office or in a car or somewhere else other than in a science lab ready to have a functional MRI. So this was the very first blush of that. And, and it's a very well done study. I, you know, Dirk does really good work. What can you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, central uh, upper uh, cerebellar vermis. So you, you, you mentioned the cerebellum and of course uh, means, uh, means get our ears perked up because we, we like uh, uh, studying about this, the cerebellum and how it relates to social um, integration. And we, we know that cerebellum gets implicated in autism spectrum disorders and synchrony kind of issues and rhythm uh, issues. Um, the right parietal, temporal parietal junction has to do with the facial recognition. So all those things are kind of looped together. And, and what's interesting is this is all stuff that's in the posterior region. So when we're talking about neuropsychological testing, I, ha- I had an issue with this uh, recently. Um, I, I have a, a young, young kid I was testing uh, recently who um, all of their neuropsych tests were great. Uh, everything that, that we can test for um, in terms of the tests we have available were fantastic. And then the dad is like, well, why is my kid suffering if all his test scores are great? Well, the neuropsychological testing really, uh, with, with some exception, only tests the prefrontal cortex. So, you know, we could test problem solving. We can test uh, IQ kinds of things, which, you know, very, uh, who knows what that tests, but, um, but mostly frontal lobe kinds of things. And when we have issues with things such as motivation, which is uh, a frontal lobe issue. We don't have tests for that. And we don't have really good tests for social um, integration. Uh, I have a new device I just got that shows people uh, pictures with different uh, emotional expressions. And so, you know, here's a picture of black. And they're, they're kind of spooky, to be honest with you, but kind of these black and white pictures of people sad and angry and happy and neutral and things like that. And then we're testing for, you know, how readily, how quickly can the person respond with identifying the different different uh, affective states. So we're coming up with with different kind of tests for, for those things, but but still a difficult thing to get after with an objective paper and pencil test. Um, so yeah, so that, so it's great to have, you know, a the imaging, you know, to to back things up for sure because neuropsych testing is kind of has some gaps in in, in that uh, area. Um, the, the other thing I, I think is interesting when you look at the temporal parietal junction is 
where the facial recognition, they, there's lots of tests, lots of research that um, I think there were, were there goats that there were uh, goats that have different uh, faces that people can distinguish uh, different uh, uh, goat faces, which is interesting. And then it's the same region that you can distinguish it, it, um, different cars by just looking at the front of a car. You can tell what uh, brand it is kind of thing. So very, very specific, um, but, but important for distinguishing me from not me, right? F friend or foe kind of areas in, in your brain. So I could see where I was trying to actually kind of stitch together in my mind how the post-traumatic stress can get in here, but, um, and, and maybe Jay can go, go back on that. But uh, I guess what I was thinking is that, that that is the me or not me place is, you know, friend or foe. Do I recognize this as somebody in my troop or is it not? Do I need to run or do I need to get out the, the Uzi or whatever people do? Um, so uh, I also think, and, and I'm kind of uh, going different places here, but I always think of um, people say that, uh, you know, we start talking about racism. It's a very de delicate topic, but um, people say that people are taught to be um you know, judgmental in terms of biased in terms of race. But I think this particular area of the brain kind of argues the other way um, that uh, people have a hard time distinguishing between uh, racial groups and, you know, me versus not me and, and, and this kind of stuff. So I think this is probably the area of the brain that, that needs um, a, a lot of the, uh, the research in terms of, you know, uh, conducting uh, racism uh, understanding. So uh, I'll bring it back to Jake. So um... one one of the uh, one of the nice things about EEG based testing or ERP based testing is that you don't have to worry about uh, the age and experience and all of that. It's a, it's a very objective test of brain response to stimuli, mm -hmm. and the ERP uh, can use faces as the stimuli. Uh, Yuri Kropotov has norms for all of this as well. But uh, uh, using the faces, you basically task the right temporoparietal junction. Uh, that, and, and in autism, uh, Asperger's autism, uh, that, that task uh, identifies them really, really quickly. Uh, it's, it's an area of the brain that's just not working well uh, for perceiving the social context and facial expressions. And obviously, in, in autism, the, uh, the, the aversion of the eyes, they don't Asperger's autism. I don't like to look at faces. Uh, they, they they'll, they'll they'll look everywhere except directly in your eyes. Um, although if you're not looking, uh, they look at your face. <laughs> so um, uh, it, it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, but uh, the ERP can test it objectively and actually have uh, normative uh, comparisons to to use um, uh, the. Uh, in ERP, uh, uh, you can decompose the raw signal of the event-related potential into the component parts using ICA. And Yuri Kropotov actually got the Russian Prize for Science uh, by doing this. Uh, and uh, you can actually break it down. If it's a visual task, and it, um, you, you see the arrival of the visual stimulus at about 100 milliseconds at the back of the head, except if you have PTSD or anxiety, in which case that arrival is early and large. Uh, if, if you have uh, uh, significant anxiety or PTSD, you expect the P100 wave to be uh, uh, brisk, very, very quick, uh, 20, 25 milliseconds early sometimes. And that's, that's a lot of early. Uh, and you expect it to be very large, 25, 30% larger, sometimes double the size of a, of a normal response. And if you can imagine, the nervous system is essentially jumpy. If you're anxious or have PTSD, that person, if you give them a startle stimulus, they're the ones who are going to jump, jump, not just respond, but jump. They'll be jumpy. So, uh, yeah, the, the testing with the ERP, uh, the component analysis, not only identifies the right temporal junction in, in processing, but it also identifies their base state. If the amygdala has a primary emotion, all activated and charged up, 
It changes the thalamic gating and the ERP is early and big. So uh, these things actually have biological testing, uh, you know, not, not just uh, questionnaires to fill out, uh, which, you know, uh, pe people doing self-report aren't necessarily the most reliable reporters, uh, but the, the, the ERP is as reliable as the day is long. So I, I would strongly urge uh, that, that you, you consider using that. On, that. on that note, Jay, so Laura was mentioning neuropsych testing and you know, standard tests tend to fall short at times, yet people are in our offices because things aren't okay. And so you do have those situations like Laura was describing when you're talking with a parent or an individual and you're like, hey, you test great. Uh, I wish I had your test scores. And they're like, well, that's great. Um, but you know, here's these other issues. And so this is encouraging because there are other means to assess what's going on for folks beyond paper pencil. And an ERP test is one. A cue, if you're getting reliable data, is another way to talk to folks about what's happening. The bigger picture in my mind, or, or the bigger challenge is, and, and when you have folks in your office, you know, to some extent, they're a captive audience. And so it's a good thing. It's, a, it's an opportunity to educate without sound, sounding patronizing, hopefully, but to get beyond the notion that drives so much of what behavior is and how it's dealt with either personally or as a parent or as a spouse, whatever, as a, another human is that a lot of this stuff is beyond conscious control. And so let's start having those conversations. Of course, if you're a parent, yeah, you're going to have consequences for actions because you need to, you know, then society does too, right? But to get beyond, hey, I told them this a thousand times and they're still doing it. Sure, maybe sometimes your kid's being a brat and, and that's for you to figure out. And parenting's harder than neuropsychologist-ing for sure. But then there's also these other times because of what we're seeing here, that it's not about whether your kid's hearing you, his hearing works. He's this bright kid because look at all these skills he's able to demonstrate yet what the hell's going on in those moments when they're not accessing what they know to do what they need in their environment. And sometimes that means doing what your parents tell you so you don't get grounded. We're able to go beyond these tests and again, hopefully shed some light on the idea that, man, what we do by and large is unconsciously driven and motivated. Like 95% of what we do is the number that's thrown out there that's driven by all of these unconscious functionings. So that's what we need to get after. Sure, tell your kid not to run out in the street, tell them not to hit their sister or brother, but it's a lot more than that. And it also hopefully will allow us to move away in treatment from the dynamic get, that gets created. Hey, I told you to do this. You didn't do it. You're being defiant. You're being oppositional. There's 50 DSM diagnoses that'll cover it if you want it to. But let's get after this other stuff. And I have one more point to make, and it's reiterating what you said, Laura. And it's about our mentor, Jay, or sorry, Jay. Jay's our mentor now. Len was our mentor before. And he used to say, yeah, these tests aren't going to measure everything. They're going to measure just what you said. They're going to measure what you know and what you do uh, or what you can do. Let's try to watch because that's what we have, our clinical skills to some extent. Let's watch how folks do what they do. And if you have a kid that's sitting in your office that's not making eye contact and, and has you know, poor social skills, however that might be measured, just maybe an interpersonal interaction, but they're knocking it out of the park on, on a Wexler test, that other information is what we're able to, I think, substantiate with this imaging, right? It's not just a gut thing. Hey, the kid's like, he's not giving me, you know, humanness back. So, so let me try to write that up in an eval. When you have data like an EEG or, you know, this other imaging type um, data, we just have more to lean on, which again, I think is, is accurate, but also it's allowing us to move towards encouraging is what I'm trying to say, because it's allowing us to move to this other way of conceptualizing how we do what we do as, you know, smart talking opposable thumb animals, right? Like there's, there's a way to address this that's beyond just 
I told you to do it, so you should do it. We just started to talk about the ERP. And the ERP is a complex waveform. If we decompose it into its pieces with ICA, you basically have the visual detection of the stimulus that's just at the back of the head at about 100 milliseconds. And then you have processing, left and right uh, temporal junction processing. What is it that I just saw? Where is it that I just saw it? Uh, uh, this is the auditory event really potential arriving again at about 100 milliseconds, like the visual. Uh, but then there's the, if this is a VCPT or a, any kind of an ERP, usually re- requires a response. So hitting a button or not hitting a button in a go, no ghost. And this is the, this is the go uh, button, basically, the, the brain uh, hitting the button. A little bit later is the actual inhibition of hitting the button. This is the stop or no-go. And this is what you're just talking about. The last thing of the ERP is the brain judging, is what I just did correct or is it not correct? This is the anterior cingulate. You hold a model of what you should be doing in your mind. And if you just performed properly, it should give you a thumbs up. Good job. You just did what the model said you should do. People can have perfectly appropriate responses, no errors, no commission errors, no omission errors, and their brain keeps giving them error signals. That's OCD. You you wash your hands. Your brain says, oops. You wash your hands again. Your brain says, oops. You wash your hands again. So you you have an obsessive-compulsive behavior because the anterior cingulate is giving you error codes inappropriately. Uh, Lock the lock, walk away, turn around, check the lock, turn around, check the lock, turn around, check the lock. Uh, uh, Obsessive compulsive behaviors are driven by the anterior cingulate, not so much the temporal parietal junction, but the anterior cingulate. And if the anterior cingulate's not working, whether it's got slow content like theta or alpha or beta, the same exact behavior pops out. You, you know, it's an error code, whether it's an error code with one or the other or the other of the EG signals, it's still an error code. And when you get that, you, you basically end up having uh, obsessive compulsive traits. Now, if somebody has OCD and they're locked onto something, you know, they're motivated towards it. Uh, if you try to motivate them towards something else by saying, little Johnny, you know, let's leave the sandbox and come over here with the books and, and we're, you know, we're going to go to reading now instead of playing in the sandbox. Well, little Johnny's singulate uh, focused on something doesn't perceive that in an adult awareness. Oh, they want me to go over and look at the books. It perceives it as a threat to its existence. You're trying to kill me is what the limbic system perceives if you're trying to push him away from the thing it's motivated towards. How do you think the oppositional defiant you know, behavior is so extreme? Well, it's extreme from the outside perspective. If you're the inside perspective, they're trying to kill me. I've got to respond in a fairly aggressive fashion to protect myself. So the oppositional defiant explosiveness is basically driven by the limbic system's lack of adult conscious awareness of things. It's just seeing threat. And uh, again, the response is excessive. So, uh, uh, you know, instead of telling little Johnny that he's got to go play with the books in some way, uh, rather than trying to force them to do something, try to uh, 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 dangle a different carrot. Uh, Don't don't push attract. You know, change the parenting style to match the pathological neuroscience that's sitting in front of them and they'll have a much better uh, parent-child relationship. And eventually you can work with this anterior singlet. You know, neurofeedback can change the theta or alpha or beta at the frontal midline. You can treat OCD quite effectively with neurofeedback. It's, it's not at the back of the head. It's up in the front uh, uh, at the anterior cingulate. Uh You can do it with DC stim. You can do it with TMS. Uh, TMS actually has an approved application for OCD. Uh, the only difficulty is the insurance companies won't cover it yet. Uh, none of them. 
uh, so uh, yeah, it's FDA approved, but not not covered by insurance at this point. So um, the you know reactive attachment, you've got the right posterior temporal parietal junction, uh, autism, Asperger's style, right temporal parietal junction, uh, uh, social perceptual problems. Uh, reactive attachment isn't the only kind. You can have PTSD, social anxiety. Uh, again, the right temporal parietal junction is the spot. Um, it cuts across DSM categories. It's a symptom of social perception problems, and it cuts across the DSM. If you see a hot spot in the right temporal parietal junction in a map, you still have to figure out which way, you know, what, what expression is this? Is this a an attachment issue? Is this a OC? Is this a, a PTSD? Exactly what's the DSM cluster that this lines up with? But you know you've got a pathological process when you see the the, the maps have a right temporal parietal junction problem. And hey, uh, Jay, sorry to interrupt. Um, we were me and Skip were looking at some scans recently that had the uh, what's called stereotypically uh, in the field as the owl eyes across the uh, yeah. C3 C4 motor strip. Uh, can you talk about how how that is different or the same as this sure. kind of thing? Sure. You know, uh, the, the owl eye pattern is, is actually formally called mu. Uh, Barry Sturman uh, coined the term owl eye or monkey face because when he came up with SMR at the first major EEG meeting he went to, uh, it was dismissed as just being mu. So he doesn't like the term mu. It was beat up with it. It's an aversive stimulus for him now. So he doesn't like to use that term. Um, you know, he'll say, well, I don't like to use Greek terms, you know, uh, uh, yeah, well, he doesn't use the aversive stimulus. I don't care if you call it owl eye, monkey face, mu, uh, two dots on the head at C3, C4, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. As long as you understand what it represents, the mirror neuron system is a double loop, a frontocentral mimicking or mirroring loop. And when that disconnects from the outside world, so you, you're not related to the outside world, the resting state of that network happens. Like closing your eyes makes alpha at 0102, disconnecting from the outside world makes mu at C3, C4. Normally, it's a half a cycle to a cycle faster than the background alpha at PZ. But, you know, it's not always. There's a rare group, typically in autism, where it's slower but most of the time, it's, it's just a touch faster than the background alpha. It represents a disconnection. The left side for language, the right side for affect. So in Asperger's autism, it's not uncommon to see bilateral mu bigger on the right. Uh, in, in more full-blown autism, bilateral, perhaps even more on the left if language is their primary presentation. Uh, but it's, it's essentially a disconnect. Now, the, the mimicking or mirroring is just the mimicking. It's the frontal aspect of this loop. There's a temporal, there's a central parietal temporal junction portion of that loop as well that adds comprehension. If you understand the thing you've been mimicking, you then register that in the temporal parietal junction for comprehension. Like Wernicke's area, I joke that Wernicke might have had a sister that studied affect and we'd have the same name on the right hemisphere to confuse people even more. I, I, putting names on things in the brain is one of my pet peeves, if, if you haven't figured that out. So um, anyway, the, it's the Wernicke equivalent on the right side, uh, the hemisphere that nobody studies, you know. Uh, and there, there's a reason that it's understudied. You can have a stroke in the right hemisphere and ignore the damn thing. You know, uh, uh, people don't notice nearly as well as if you can't speak. If you can't speak, people assume you might have had a stroke. There's something wrong with your speech motor area. Uh, and, and you know, there's a, there's a big problem. But if you just can't judge affect, uh, you get away with that for a lot longer. Um, uh, my, my business partner went to pick up a relative for a dinner uh, she's normally a very well put together, uh, uh, attractive lady who dresses nicely. They met her at the door. The right half of her face had all the make makeup on absolutely beautifully. The left side of her face, it looked like the kids got into the makeup. 
you know, lipstick smeared, eyeshadow, everything all over. She didn't know that she had totally screwed up the makeup. Uh, she kind of met him at the door like she was going to dinner. She went to the ER, you know, they, they realized this is probably a stroke. In fact, that's what it was. Uh, people have tumors in the right hemisphere and it grows and grows and grows until it's grossly uh, affecting things before it's noticed. The same thing in the left hemisphere, you catch it right away. So the left hemisphere has been studied a lot more because language is easy to spot as a disturbance. Uh, emotional stuff, hell, we're not all that good at emotion, face it, you know? So um, uh, the, it's an understudied uh, hemisphere, unfortunately. Now, modern neuroscience has people studying everything. Uh, that, you know, there, there are lots and lots of papers on right hemispheric uh, uh, stuff. But historically, if you, if you go back, the left hemisphere was where most of the studies ended up being. Uh, we're getting towards the end. I want to take care of Tor just briefly, and we can, we can expand on the next show. Uh, Tor was asking about dyslectics. Maybe if we could just define what that is quickly, and then we can address it maybe on the next show. The um, neuropsychologist should be the one yeah, to define let, let me, it. Let me jump in. Yeah, there's going to be probably a teeny debate on this, but um, the... Was it uh, Sally Shaywitz? Yep. Is there I'd skip? Okay. Yep. So that's the uh, kind of primary source that we use when we, we think about um, reading disorders. There are many types of reading disorders. When, when we think of people who cannot read, they'll look at a, a jumble of symbols that are letters to everybody else, and it looks to them as a jumble of symbols. It's not really a visual issue, and this might be where the debate comes in, but more of a phonological issue, being able to associate sounds and symbols automatically with automaticity. If you, when, when kids are in preschool and a kindergarten, they're learning their sounds and they're learning their segments of words when they're trying to read and spell, they're associating in an automatic way that the L shape has a la sound. And so when you repeat that uh, enough times, there's X number of times those things get paired together and um, it becomes automatic. And we are born to read. We're born to do that in an automatic way. And if it doesn't happen, then there's, they call it a reading disorder, which is why you get uh, accommodations for it at school, because you can't read. You can practice and practice and practice. And I've had 40-year-old uh, uh, grown-ups, uh, professionals who run businesses come to my office who cannot read. They cannot read the contracts. They can't. I, I give them a um, a release information to sign that I can't read that. So from a very specific uh, definition, we'll say that it's a sound symbol correspondence uh, issue related to procedural learning. And there's more to that, but, um, and then there's levels of different reading disorders in terms of like reading comprehension, uh, things of that nature, but that has more to do with uh, working memory and things like that. Um, so I'm curious how, uh, Skip wants to add to that, or Jay would. Well, more, more, more of the same, Laura. Um, but included in that would be um, speeded naming, right? So being able to recognize symbols accurately. And so I wonder where that comes into play as far as vision, right? And then, you know, not to argue, but just to put in another piece. Right. And so if you have difficulty quickly and accurately recognizing that L shape as an L or because maybe there is something funky with your vision system that it turns it around. Clearly that's going to affect, you know, how you can produce reading. Right. So, so it's going to affect timing and all that stuff. Um, so that's another part of it too, but I guess just the bigger questions, Hey, what's dyslexia and it's a reading issue. It's not just flipping letters, which I think, you know, the maybe majority of folks might, might think, uh, and the book by Sally Shaywitz, by the way, is, you know, the, the Bible and I've handed it out so many times, you know, that we have a, a checkout list at the office for parents, because it's an understanding of one, what you're saying and what I'm trying to say, but also ways to practically manage it. And so that's, it, 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 it's, it's something to be worked with as well. And if you don't back to Len, right? If you don't have the foundational skills down, use the building a house analogy. What do you get? You get to the second story and your windows don't line up and your house looks silly. So you have to have these foundational skills, which 
come about naturally, right? They, 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 they reveal themselves. We have this capacity built into us to do these things, or as he would say, we don't, right? So this stuff should be kicking in four, five, six. And if it doesn't, we got to do something about it, right? It's supposed to come online naturally uh, because that's how we're built uh, or it does not. And then we have problems because our society, as Jay was pointing out, put so much emphasis on language and reading, right? That's, we, we have to be able to do those things well to kind of excel. And if you don't, yeah. it stands out. Yeah, and just to, to jump in there again, um, and this is maybe where debates kind of come up that my, my understanding, and, and again, other people are going to have different uh, perspectives on this. My understanding is there's not a brain system that flips letters. We, we, there's not a mirror system in it. This is different than our discussion on mirror neurons, but there's not a, a flipping system as much as it's a procedural issue that you've been associating these sounds and symbols for so many months and years as a young, young person that eventually it kicks in. And, and if the glue doesn't stick, if the, the pairing doesn't result in the learning, then that's the dis- disorder. That's, that's the, it's a learning disorder because you've, you've, you've done this so many times, this procedure, and it doesn't uh, turn into actual reading. And there isn't a flipping system per se in the mind, in the brain, um, you know, let, let's try to point to it. It, it. it isn't there. We were talking about the right parietal, temporal parietal junction, the left parietal, temporal parietal junction it has a lot to do with lexicon and, in word patterns and uh, things like that. So uh, um, when that area is disrupted, then then you're going to have some reading issues for sure. In math too, by the way, but other yeah. topic. Mm-hmm. I was going to add the math. Uh, uh, you know, dyslexia from the EEG, QEG perspective has two primary findings. One is the parietal midline where sensory integration happens you know, vision for letters isn't really in the occipital area. That, that's real raw perception. Uh, the angles and contrast and dark surrounded by light, convex, concave, all, all those raw perceptions. It's like the TV pictures before the, lot, the dots lined up. It's not really perception. It, 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 there's a few levels of integration. And finally, it gets up into the parietal area. And that, at that point, you can see the curvature and the line come together. It's a letter D. And you might see the letter O and the letter G. Is that dog or God you still don't know parietally? So the, the parietal area is probably the one responsible for the flipping phenomenon, because that's where you perceive the integrated letters. But you don't understand the word until it gets into the temporal area. The temporal parietal junction on the left is the highest level of integration for visual and auditory language function, both auditory and visual language. And uh, that location ends up actually being identifiable in a genetic grouping of dyslexia and dyscalculia. Uh, There there are papers about the genetics of dyslexia at this point. And uh, the Uh, it's not that everybody who has lexical issues ends up having genetic, the same genetics, but there is a predisposing genetic pattern. Uh, You know, um, getting around the visual by using the auditory, which is Tortox approach is essentially trying to route you to the system that's still integrated and working. Uh, your vision integration to get language into the left temporal may not be working, but the auditory may. So, uh, you, you know, the work around the problem if the problem is pretty much intractable. And if you've missed a, a critical period in the development of the pairings, as you're pointing out, uh, yeah, critical periods are hard to replace. If you miss a critical period, you can end up having you know, inability to actually see if you didn't have visual input early in life. Uh, so, you know, the, the critical period thing is, is crucial as well. You know, uh, you didn't have glasses early in your life and you couldn't see anything. Well, you know, your visual integration is not going to really be, you know, primed. So um, we were talking initially about the right temporal parietal junction, uh, other than a bit of the parietal area. Uh, for sensory integration, the highest level of integration for language and mathematics, well, simple mathematics, is, is the left temporal parietal junction. You know, higher, lang- uh, higher level mathematics 
you know, it's not just, you know, one plus one is two. You start to get into geometry, trigonometry, linear uh, algebra, where you're manipulating matrices and stuff. You have to have spatial perception going on there too. And I always joke that if you have calculus, you have to use all your fingers and all your toes as well. So, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the left hemisphere strongly needed for language and mathematics, uh, but high level math, you've got to use the rest of the brain as well. Okay, guys, put a fork in it. We, we ran out of time. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcasts. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, Outrageous Baking, Tour Talk. And while we're doing the show, Joshua M., owner of Alternative Behavioral Therapy, became another business sponsor. So now we have three. How about that, guys, while we're sitting here? Jo- I know, Joshua. I know Joshua. So hi. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Joshua, we thank you. We thank you. Oh, we're almost there. We can almost pay for the coffee, guys. <laughs> so we have Outrageous Baking, Tour Talk, Joshua M. at Alter- Alternative Behavioral Therapy, EEG and me, Sadia M., Jonathan Rowan, January Terrell. Outrageous Baking is a dedicated gluten-free bakery that's been around for 15 years. And Tor Talk wants more people to discover TTS Talk to Speech because listening to text can increase efficiency and reduce stress. Joshua M., I haven't gotten your specifics, but I know you're in Washington and Jay knows you. So that's got to be good for something, right? Jay, we love our Patreon supporters, don't we? Absolutely. You know, if we get any more of them, we're going to have to have rolling credits at the end here. Well, that's what I, that's what I tell everybody, you know, we, we have a few now and everybody can get a lot of exposure, but as time goes on, that's why, you know, we keep it cheap, you know, 25 bucks here, 10 bucks there, Jay, we're not asking for a lot. Just help us pay for our coffee bill. Hey, do you have an idea for a topic? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars in Apple podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is taken off. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, follow us on Twitter. And again, hey, if you really, really, really like us, buy us some coffee beans on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. We love our Patreon peeps. Cue the music. <laughs>